All right, would you please open your Bibles in the time we have remaining this morning? Uh, I want to be in the Word of God. I'm, I'm so thankful. Um, I'm so thankful, church, for the nearness of God to his people. And I hope that you yourself experience just the joy and the privilege that that is. That, that as it's already been said this morning, as a reminder that God has drawn near to us. And he has pulled us, if you will, towards himself to be with the people, to be his people's God, to be not just their savior, but their father. And we have just such, the, it's such a blessing and a privilege, church, that we have a father whom not only do we bring our requests and our complaints sometimes to, right, but one who hears, but one who loves, but one who pursues us like our fathers pursue us, who doesn't fail like we as fathers sometimes fail, who is perfect in love, perfect in mercy, perfect in grace. I'm just so thankful. It's just, it's just been a, a very sobering amidst all the wonderful time with family and the happenings and the comings and goings of these last number of days. I'm so thankful just for this real tangible presence of God being near. Would you turn, please, in, in, to your Bibles, to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Um, I'm going to read this morning, just actually finishing chapter 2. And um, historically, the church has not celebrated five weeks of Advent, but because we are non-denominational, Protestant, charismatic, we can do what we want. And we're going to add a fifth week into Advent today. And so I want to just... Uh, let it be a, a bit of a landing space. And so if you've not been with us the last four weeks, we have been worshiping through this Advent season through Isaiah chapter nine. And Isaiah's just prophetic uh, characterization of the Messiah. And each week we took one and we worshiped around it. We meditated upon it and we taught from the scripture on it as well. And so I'm not gonna teach from Isaiah nine. We're, we're out of the four characteristics, if you will, of who the Messiah is. However, I want to now speak to who we are as the Messiah's people. And I, as I was just saying, in terms of the nearness of God, I hope you yourself are experiencing being one of God's own. I hope you experience now and into this 2022 year, just this really vibrant sense of possession, that you are God's possession. And all the blessing that comes with that, the provision, and as I already said, the care, the guidance, the discipline, the comfort, everything that God provides his people. I hope that you experience it in a true and genuine way. So I wanna speak this morning just to that, to being God's people. And now our posture, if you will, or the characterization, one of them, of what it means to be a people in this inter-advental period. If you're not familiar with what Advent is, Advent literally just means coming. It's a Latin word, and it speaks of, of course, to the, the coming of Christ and the birth of Jesus. But it also can be used to speak of the coming of the gospel into our own hearts. And of course, it speaks to the future of when Christ will return. And so now here on this side of the cross, we as God's people live in this tension of, of the inter-advents. The benefit, the blessing, the fullness of life received from Christ's first advent 
all as a foretaste and a pointing towards what will be ultimately ours when he returns again. And if there's one thing, church, that I, that I struggle with from time to time, to be totally honest with you, is just an overarching sense of longing for the eternal. When I stop and when I really think about it at times, it's easy to, to find myself caught up in just saying, God, come, God, come. But in terms of my day-to-day-to-day life, I don't do it well. I don't live well with this reflection of a longing heart for what will one day be. And I say that before you today, just in humility to say, I want to be that more. Because I think that when we truly are a people who long for what will be, there are things that are, that's indicative of, indicative of. The first is that we see the value of the eternal. We understand and we comprehend in our hearts of what will one day be. And even just in saying that, my heart begins to be stirred in faith. And I'm reminded of the beauty, even though I cannot fathom what that next stage, if you will, that final stage of redemptive history will look like, I can still find faith and excitement. But I want to find that I live from a place of longing for it. And I don't know about you, and I don't know if maybe you're more like me in just the honest sense, if you're like, man, I rarely think of the eternal. I don't live with a longing. There's no waiting in my heart. Brothers and sisters, I think it just means that we need to be gripped more by what is true and to have an understanding of what, not just what will be, because all we have is what has been shown to us, right? But in terms of the longing to see this age of humanity end and an ushering in of God's final new creation where once again God dwells with his people. That affects us now in this life because that, that, that frame, that lens, that, if you will, that's laid over that we see things through affects how we live right now. It affects the, the decisions that we make and how we train our children and the way that, that I relate to my wife and the things that Shannon and I pursue together. Those are all affected when suddenly... There is this sense of emptiness within my life that this present day brings. And so I guess what I'm saying to you this morning, church, is I want to live empty. I want to live with this sense of emptiness in the sense of like nothing here is going to fill what only God purposes to fill with his presence and with his life. And you know what I'm saying? So let's look at Luke 2, and I, I'm, it's, it's up here, and I'm going to speak this morning on what I'm calling a people of longing. This is our posture now. In light of what we have just understood of the Messiah, what we have <laughs> pondered and considered, we must ask ourselves, church, when we are presented with truth, how will we respond? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for our life? What are the implications of it? So Luke chapter two, I'm just gonna finish the chapter. We're gonna begin in verse 22. This is where I left off last week after speaking about Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. This directly follows. 
And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, now they're talking about Mary Joseph and the baby Jesus. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess in verse 36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the, I don't think that's how you pronounce it, Phanuel, we'll go with Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple. Listen to this. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Why? And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. I have read that part of Luke 2 so many times. And this last month, just that picture of Simeon, of here is a man Apparently, obviously, all we have is what Luke tells us about him. Totally nondescript, but a man in Jerusalem. We don't even know what he's doing, but he's in Jerusalem, and he's devout, and he's righteous. And this is interesting church, too. Remember, this is before Pentecost. So the Spirit of God had not yet been released to dwell among and in his people. And here is a man where it says the Holy Spirit had rested upon him. And I would, if my first thought is I think of Anna is like, oh, he's probably an older guy and he just sits around the temple all the time kind of waiting for this moment. And it actually, reality is, is he could have been a young man. He could have been a middle-aged man. We don't know anything about him, but what we know, brothers and sisters, is that he was devout and righteous. Oh, and I absolutely love what Luke says and that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Just this beautiful language that Luke presents with these two people. And, and I think, well, I'll get to it in a moment. I don't want to jump too, too far ahead. As I was preparing for this week and, and, or this morning and, and thinking about it, the, the illustration that came to my mind was the most obvious one, and it's this. As, as an older adolescent and as a young teen, 
I was just saying this to my sisters last night. I was just crazy ecstatic for Christmas. And it just, I loved it. The morning of, I'd get up super early before anybody was up. I think my parents ended up having to institute like a nothing before seven at one point in my life. I'd get up at like five, 5.30. I would lay basking in the glow of the Christmas tree. And, and there could have been three presents. I don't know how many presents, but it seemed like millions. It was like a cornucopia from the giving tree, just flowing out beneath this thing. I mean, this is in my mind. This was the, like the picture that I have. And as things go, well, and, and actually to make it even, even more exciting for me as an adolescent, my mom and dad would never put presents under the tree. It was instead shrouded in this white sheet in my mom's bedroom, this little mound. And sometimes as it got closer, it might grow a little bit and you might get excited and we'd, you know, I'd peek once in a while underneath the blanket. And, and, uh, and then you get a little bit older and you hit your teen years. And I remember my sister Kara just decided she was going to start sleeping and it was no longer as exciting to get up early and look at the tree as sleep was a bit more exciting. And then slowly I followed suit and you find yourself now with teenagers and our daughter is like, wake me up at eight. And that's early for her this year. And so it's like this, this waning starts to happen in my enthusiasm for this day that I absolutely could not wait for. And, um, but what, what is amazing about it is just a simple, silly illustration, church, is that I was so consumed with anticipation for what would soon be consummated in that Christmas morning. And, it's, and as I thought about it, it's a bit of a picture, although very dim, <laughs> like, here, like this man Simeon, but yet he did not wane, and Anna, and they, they did not falter. Their perseverance and their diligence in looking and waiting and longing for what they knew to be true persevered and remained steadfast. And church, I think, interestingly, because there's not a lot said by Luke about Simeon or Anna, I think what is, what is less important, sorry, what is more important is who they, not necessarily, oh, I'm saying this backwards, what was less important is not who they were, but what was more important is what they actually tell us about their life in that moment, of what it was like to live waiting for the Christ to appear. And I want to just extract some of this this morning and some postures that they show to us as now a, a New Testament people living in this inner advental period. And so the first and, and most obvious posture that we see in both of these individuals and I would say it's perhaps the most significant because what I think it does is I believe that this posture actually is, it produces the others that I will mention this morning is that they were characterized by their waiting, by their waiting. Are we a people of waiting? Are we characterized by our waiting? And just listen to this for a minute. The, the word that in the Greek that is translated in English as waiting here in Luke when it talks of Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel, it's meant to convey, listen church, a sense of unwavering resolve. Something that is fixed to a promise. The culmination 
of which is most certain in the heart of the individual. There was no question in Simeon whether the promise that was prophesied hundreds of years previously would come. How often can we say that? When, how often do we waver in our hearts, church? Because we don't see what we, what we know is true, what we have placed our hope in, and yet we don't see it, and so we waver. How long, O oh Lord, how long? I mean, the Old Testament was rife with that question. David lamented often, how long, O oh Lord? Waiting, waiting, waiting. So this wave, waiting is is an unwavering resolve that's fixed to a promise. It is an anticipatory waiting, which expects and believes and knows the fulfillment of said promise. There was no question in the mind of Simeon or Anna as to whether or not it would come to pass. The fulfillment of the promise was absolutely certain. My excitement as a youth it was fixed in a certainty. And what did I see too? There were signs, the, the gift pile in the bedroom, the tree with the lights, the advent calendars where you're eating the chocolate every day, wanting to eat two so that the days go by more quickly. There were signs that I saw that pointed me. Simeon knew, he, and Anna knew as well. Their hearts were grounded and they were rooted in the truth that, was, that made it absolutely certain of what would one day be. And I think this posture of waiting church is one that's not simply unique to these two people. It's reflective of a heart that knows the promises of God and understands the time in which they live within. And I think it's important if we don't move past this point too quickly in this moment of redemptive history in today. As God's people, what are we called to hold to unwaveringly? That's what I was talking about. That just that sense of longing in our heart. We're called as New Testament believers to live with an eye towards eternity, not looking not just only towards the Consolation or the comfort is that word consolation of Israel, the Christ's return. But we are to look to Christ who is himself, as it was said, the joy of the entire world. We are to look to Christ, not just for what we will receive, but look unto him, church. That's what we're called to today. That's who the type of people we are to be, a people who are waiting with their eyes fixed upon him. In, in the year 1744, John Wesley penned a prayer that would shortly thereafter become a hymn, uh, a, an Advental hymn or a Christmas hymn, which has become quickly one of my absolute favorites. And I am embarrassed to say it took me like 40 years to actually hear this thing. But it is the song, and we've sung it actually this year during our Advent worship. It's now called Come thou long expected Jesus. And I wanted to just read these words to you. And speaking of a, of a longing heart and a people of waiting who have their eyes fixed on what will one day be. It says this, his words, and again, think of it, it began as a prayer and became a song. And I love the idea of that. Come thou long expected Jesus. 
born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. May we find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now your gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine own sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. I, I will listen to that song and, and I will weep and it's like so moving for me because I think it speaks, church, to what I'm fumbling around at moments here trying to say. It speaks to a heart that desires, that understands that this present day holds nothing of what it really needs. And it laments what presently is, but with joy of will what one day be. And I think these aren't words that are sung by the faint of heart, church. They're words of praise to those whose certainty is fixed in a promise. Look at Titus chapter 2. So I'm talking about it, just a, a posture of waiting is the first that we see, a posture of waiting in Simeon and Anna. Titus 2 in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, waiting, same word, there it is, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good, for good works. Four verses summarizing the gospel in such beautiful language from Paul. Doggone it, Paul. He's got all the good, all the good sayings, doesn't he? But, it, but here's the point. Paul shows us the logical conclusion of the dawning of redemptive grace. The logical conclusion of grace appearing to us. And we know because we've just studied recently, if you're part of this church, the word there for grace is the word charis. And that word is used to speak of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the grace of God. So when it says that the grace of God has appeared, how did it appear? In the person of the Christ. And what does that grace do? It teaches us and it trains us in these things for what purpose? Verse 13, waiting that we might be a people of waiting. Real waiting, genuine waiting, new creation waiting, grace-empowered waiting. His grace has appeared for all people. This gift of grace that was Christ's advent into our own hearts, it has the byproduct 
of that same word again. It has the byproduct of waiting. It's the result. Waiting is the result of grace appearing. It's an eager anticipation, not something we simply do because I'm saying we need to do it. I'm not saying we need to be a people of waiting and a people of longing, and so therefore you do it. What I'm saying is that it is a byproduct of grace appearing in our hearts. Because grace, again, what we have received is a down payment and a deposit that points to something greater. And so the revelation of grace to the hearts and the minds of men and women across this world automatically leaves us with this desire of something that will one day be. It's a byproduct. Like Simeon and Anna, listen, brothers and sisters, they weren't just passing time. They weren't just going on with their life, waiting around until that moment culminated. They were pursuing it actively. That's what they're waiting involved, church. Are we pursuing Christ? And you know what I mean by that. There's like a thousand implications for that question. Are we pursuing them? The eager anticipation is a result of God's grace being poured into our heart. It's a longing that comes from a heart awakening which knows that this is not God's ultimate act of creation. I am not meant for this earth. We say that. Do we mean it? I am not meant for this earth. Let's go get five guys. Let's go do this. I mean, yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. But you know what I'm saying? It's like we make these big, grandiose statements of piety, and then we walk out and we live completely counter to what we say from time to time. And that's the tension, right? That's the struggle that we live in, in this half in, half out, both and the eternity and the present. Just as God's kingdom holds with it a longing for the ultimate expression of glorified existence, so too does this earthly kingdom, listen church, so too does this earthly kingdom present its own counterfeit reality of real existence. The kingdom of God says this is what true living is. And the world says, no, 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 this is what true living is. And unless we're rooted in the one, then we'll be rooted in this present one. Everything outside God's kingdom, church, is geared towards tuning our hearts towards a longing for terrestrial realities. Everything outside, comfort, leisure, success, gains. What we view of a cultural moment, all of those things outside of Christ are geared towards tuning us into the joys of this world and not the joys and the true benefits of life in Christ. So how do we know that we are on the right course? How can we tell what are the benchmarks, what are the earmarks of a life that is tuned in this way? I think it's simple. Do our longings for the eternal outshine our longings for the earthly? And what does Paul say? The grace of God has appeared and it trains us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. 
And I thought it was interesting, in Paul's mind here, God's grace isn't just for our ungodliness, and it's easy for us to think of that, I think, from time to time. I think it's easy to understand how the grace of God is necessary for all of my ungodliness, but Paul includes with it, too, the benign, seemingly benign, just the worldly passions that aren't necessarily ungodly. And it's interesting, that that phrase there in Titus chapter 2 literally means earthly longings. The grace of God teaches us to say no to the earthly longings, church. Let me just wrap up. I'll do it quickly. Now, I want to say this too, just lastly to this, to this point of waiting and longing, that God's grace isn't presented that we might simply live void of earthly longing, but that we would live with, filled with true longing of eternal. See what I'm saying? I think that's important because I think from time to time, we think that the gospel just wants to strip things away from us. And sometimes it feels more about what God would take rather than what we are denying by taking up of our own. Does that make sense? What God is saying is he, he lays out a table before us of blessing. And he's saying his invitation is come and partake and enjoy and be filled. But we say, oh, God, I'm too stuffed because I've been eating five guys for the last week. Right? I've been filling myself, and I've been filling myself with these earthly longings. And so, and that's, that's not, so what I'm saying is, is God wants us to be filled. So just coming back to finish here in, in, in Luke 2, what are the postures do we then see modeled within Simeon? So I said the first was, and maybe the most significant, was that they were characterized by their waiting. And I said, because waiting results in some others. And in verse 25, it says this. If you look back again at Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. It says this about Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. These three things, church, are not mutually exclusive one for the other. Rather, I think they're actually each intricately intertwined with one affecting the other. Devout, righteous, and having the spirit of God upon him. But as I said, unlike Simeon who lived pre-Pentecost, we have the benefit and the joy of living a spirit-filled life now. We had it better, have it better than Simeon had it then. In the sense of every moment of every day, church, we are filled with the spirit of God who compels us into and onward towards the eternal longings. Just like God, isn't it, to give us everything that we need. The Holy Spirit is God's present day instrument of grace whose purpose is to bring about righteousness within our lives. I was thinking about this, you know, there's not, uh, Cam and I were actually, we're talking last week about homeostasis. In Christ, there's no homeostasis. In that there's no, I was talking about equilibriums last week. There's no zero point of just being comfy. We're growing or we're not growing, church. And if we're not growing, 
then we're not growing, right? But the grace of God causes us to grow by training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But just like the waiting, there's a genuine to the counterfeit. The genuine, sorry, there's a counterfeit to the genuine. The genuine in our lives is not just an absence of worldliness. The genuine bears fruit, fruit which is righteousness, fruit which is godliness. These are qualities, church, that are brought about by the Spirit of God. They're action verbs in our life, being devout. And by God's grace, we're able to hold with effective devotion. That's what that devout word is. Hold with effective devotion, to grab a hold of with effective devotion, the process of sanctification in our life. And then lastly, sorry, I'm just going to, I'm just kind of blowing through it here. I hope you're following me okay. I just want to speak quickly to Anna. Her waiting was accompanied by a posture of worship and prayer, it tells us. Worship and prayer. And I was thinking, did she literally spend every single day and every night worshiping and praying at the temple? I don't know. I doubt it, but I don't know. I don't think that's the important thing. I think what Luke was trying to communicate was somebody who is so radical that they're completely separate from the world around. No, I don't think so. Spending all their time singing and praying, I don't think that's what Luke was saying. I think he's describing the tenor of one's life, the overarching tenor of the life of a, of a believer, devoted to worship, devoted to prayer. Someone who lives in the earthly, but with a heart rooted in the future eternal separated unto the Lord. And there's much more that can be said about that. But I'm just, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to say these things, church, to us in like a, a glib way. I want these to be genuine aspects of our life because in them is joy and, and fulfillment and is blessing. God has given us these things. And, and what's more, again, just as a reminder, it's the grace of God that enables us to live in such a way, enables us to live righteous, enables us to live as though we've grabbed a hold of well to our devotion unto him, enables us to live in a posture of worship and prayer all while we wait and we long towards the eternal, which is yet to be fully revealed, but will one day be. I think this is, this is an earmark of a believer. This is, these are characteristics of what it means to be God's people. And if I can just finish, I want to read First uh, Thessalonians 5. And I know I've gone over by a couple minutes, but I think you guys will be all right. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. I'm, I just want to read this because I felt like, I just felt like it was helpful as we complete this, this season of Advent. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is the word of the Lord just concerning what will one day be. First Thessalonians 5, beginning of verse 1, he Paul says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, no need, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace, there's security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, this is for us, but you are not in darkness. For that day 
to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober like Simeon, like Anna. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith. Now here it is, the effects of grace on the life of the believer who waits in anticipation of the day. Let us put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, what do we do? We encourage one another and build one another up just as we are doing. That's where we live, brothers and sisters, in this space as described by Paul to Titus and to the church here in the Thessalonians. We live in the light. Let us not sleep, church. Let us look. Let us be waiting. And listen, if you're like me and you struggle with that eternal perspective from time to time where you would experience in your own heart this this sense, a, a lack of longing, Ask the Lord to begin to reveal by his spirit to you the, the, the benefits, the joys of what will one day be. Ask him to open his word, to begin to express light and to shed light into our hearts and implanting this seed, if you will, that, whose fruit is this longing for the joys of the eternal. I think that's where we have such an opportunity to, to be a unique people, a distinct people, when we live with eternity in our aims. Amen? Would you stand, if you don't mind? If you do mind, you may remain sitting. I just want to pray, and I want to thank you, Father, first and foremost, just for the pouring out of this life unto us. I want to thank you, my Lord, Oh, I just am reminded, Father, again of those words, the joy of every longing heart. God, you have given to us our greatest joy in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, we choose today, we choose not only to worship, but we choose again to follow, to follow wholeheartedly, Lord God. I pray, Lord, for those who feel hindered, for those who have not yet perhaps even seen this joy that has come. I pray, God, that we would live free from the restraints of this world, free from the earthly longings, and, Lord, consumed by longing for the real, for the authentic, for that which is undefiled, that which will not fade, that which never tarnishes, Lord, the eternal reality. Lord, may we be a distinct people who are characterized by this perspective, whose choices are affected Lord, with this sense of anticipation of what will one day be. Lord, I pray that we would be tuned to seeing the the benchmarks of history, Lord, that we would understand the times that we live and we would understand, Lord, as best as we can with discerning hearts, the type of people that we must be in the sense of urgency in the days that we live. Lord, I pray for the lukewarm hearts. I pray for the hearts 
that, that, that find longing of earthly things, Lord, that you would free us, we pray. Free us, Lord God, from the trappings of the terrestrial. Free us, Lord God, from being consumed with the next day's events. And may we have our hearts in the consumption of our minds, Lord, be from you and on you. We thank you, Lord, for the grace of God that has appeared to us. We thank you, Lord, that it teaches us and trains us and causes us and enables us, Lord, and gives us every ounce when we are weak and when we are failing, Lord. Glorify yourself in this church, we pray. And Lord, may this season of Advent now continue. May it continue, Lord, as we remember always that we live in between your comings. Father, we worship you. We leave this place and we close this time, Lord, just with hearts of of admiration for who you are and, Lord, adoration for your greatness and your worth, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in your name, amen.